And um, while we're in this book of Colossians, especially given the events of this week, I thought it would be good to read with you and meditate upon uh, a passage from chapter 3, starting in verse 9, speaking about uh, how we are being renewed according to the image of our maker, our creator, in true knowledge, and of what this therefore means for us in our conduct. And what all this has to do with human rights, and why do I pick this up this week? Well, as, of course, many of you will know, the uh, Supreme Court seems to be on the verge of repealing the uh, Roe v. Wade decision, as well as Casey versus Planned Parenthood, and therefore returning the matter of abortion back to legislation, back to the, uh, the states and their elected officials, and uh, all the more, therefore, is uh, your role as the people who have been given the power in this country, uh, both to conduct um, your free speech, now new and improved on Twitter, uh, as, as well as uh, elected officials uh, in light of God's word. And um, also, even my daughter Kayla mentioned yesterday to me, if you won't mind me saying, that uh, she has friends, that uh, Christian friends, who are uh, taking a very different position on this and are making various arguments. And, well, what should we say in response? Maybe, maybe some of you have already had some of those discussions. Certainly they are going on said Twitter and other places. So I'd like for us to consider tonight God's image and human rights. Reading together from Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Do not, uh, I'm sorry, let's start with verse, verse 5. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Well, let us pray. Our Father, we are thankful for many things. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and for the great deliverance that you have effected in us, that we should be heirs not only of life, but of eternal life in him. We, we thank you for the gospel heritage that our country has enjoyed and the many blessings, even the so-called human rights that have come from this doctrine of being made in your image, we pray that you would continue to bless us with this renewal of knowledge and wisdom and love as it is written, that your people might be a light unto the world 
and that we might uh, shine forth all the more in a difficult and contentious time. We pray that you would give us likewise grace to speak, seasoned with salt, and that we might have uh, a wise word in season for friends and relatives in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Plato and Aristotle commended the practice of infanticide. Seneca said that getting rid of useless children was an obligation, and it became Roman law for a time that any malformed child was to be killed. Socrates wrote that people should be as sexually promiscuous as they like, especially outside of their childbearing years, but in other cases that people ought to, quote, dispose of the resulting infant, understanding that the fruit of such a union is not to be reared. End quote. You will not find certainly any idea of human rights or the respect of life as we know it in the writings of any of the great philosophers of old, and so that the world, when the gospel came into it, was quite a different world indeed. But by 60 AD, there was a new uh, voice that was already being heard in various quarters, a new practice, something new was already happening, we know, by the 60s. Here, let me paint the scene for you. The sun begins to come up outside the city walls, and Christians are going around collecting the children that are regularly left out to die. Christians are doing it despite the risks, in fact, in many cases, in violation of the law. Uh, gathering up these so-called useless, in fact, unwanted children, uh, and then adopting them out in the church. Uh, they began to organize what Callistus termed life watches to have someone responsible to collect abandoned children regularly every day to care for them through the church until they could be adopted out. George Grant writes that in Rome, Christians rescued babies that had been abandoned on the exposure walls outside the city, often illegally and at great risk to themselves. These foundlings would then be adopted and raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And indeed, wherever and whenever the gospel went out, believers emphasized the priority of good works, especially works of compassion toward the needy. It's not just in these areas. For the first time in human history, hospitals were founded, orphanages were established, rescue missions were started, almshouses were built, soup kitchens were begun, shelters were endowed, charitable societies were incorporated, and relief agencies were commissioned. The hungry were fed, the naked clothed, the homeless sheltered, the sick nursed, the aged honored, the unborn protected, and the handicapped cherished. The heroes of the faith who demonstrated the grace of Christ through such deeds of kindness during the apostolic era were legion. Later, uh, Christian emperors, uh, at last coming to the throne, outlawed such barbaric practices as abortion and infanticide, but those, those laws were slow to take hold in the populace. For centuries, it still fell to the church to take care of unwanted life. My point to you is, right from the beginning, Christians came into the world with a whole new, vastly different approach uh, to life in general and to infants and children in the womb in particular. I could give you many, many examples of this, but I'll just give you two here. The Didache, one of the very earliest Christian writings, 
um, somewhere around the turn of the century after Christ, it says, you shall not slay the child by abortion. You shall not kill a child in the womb or murder a newborn infant. This was the Christian beginning and the ha that handbook of the Christian faith right from the beginning. Uh, in the second century, Tertullian wrote, it makes no difference whether one destroys a life already born or interferes with it coming to birth. It is the same thing. And I could, I could muster many such quotes for the same opinion. But as one historian notes, it was the universal conviction of the church right from the very start that abortion for reasons other than the defense of the mother's life was unquestionably wrong. So my question as we begin is, why? Why did the Christians have such a radically different view of human life? Uh, such that they would break the law, they would even uh, you know, risk arrest going around the city walls, picking up exposed children uh, to, in order to uh, save their lives and to rescue them, even when that was uh, roundly condemned by the society of that day. What led them to such self-sacrificial and noble practices? Well, we have that doctrine uh, not originating here, but applied here in our passage. I have basically just two points for you tonight with some meditation around them. But first, that we must treat others with sacred dignity and value because they are in the image of God. We must treat others with sacred dignity and value because they are in the image of God. The apostle here in verse 10 makes reference to being renewed according to the image of him who created him. But uh, this takes us all the way back to the beginning where in God said, God said in the beginning, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And you remember from that creation that in so many ways man was created uh, just like all the rest of the creatures, that is to say on the same day as all the rest of the uh, animals. Uh, God uh, had commanded the earth to bring forth animals after their kind, and man himself is made from the dust of the earth. So we share this animal nature, certainly, and yet at the same time, we read that man is utterly unlike the rest of living things, and that, that he receives the spirit uh, of, uh, of uh, life in him. God has created him in his own image, male and female, Man is not like the creatures in that he was created body and spirit to bear the image and likeness of God. And what a revolution that was, by the way, in the day in which Moses wrote these words, kings were the only image of God regarded as such on the earth. And the announcement of Genesis was earth shattering in that day. The word through Moses to the people was, look, although every one of you are dust, Earth and clay, every one of you from the least to the greatest, are also the image of God upon earth. This Pharaoh who has enslaved you has been devaluing, dehumanizing you, denying that you are God's image, and therefore uh, using your life for his selfish purpose. But God has a vastly different plan than Pharaoh. A plan for dignity, for the restoration of what you were meant to be, your God-given purpose in the world. You are going to become God's holy people in the image of God, rulers over creation. Those to whom God has said, have dominion over my world. And therefore, Paul calls our mind back to that creation 
and applies it not only to how we are being renewed in our minds, but you notice also how we are to treat one another. For no one is inherently of less value or glory or significance and value. Scythians were despised in that day in the ancient world. Barbarians were fought and killed like beasts. Slaves were called human tools by Aristotle. But a whole new counterculture began in the church as we had a society in which there was neither Jude or Greek, Parthian, Scythian, slave three, male, female, all one in, in Christ Jesus. James similarly writes, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who are made in God's likeness. My brothers, this should not be. Or James puts it more starkly. If somebody says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He who loves his brother, how can he love his brother whom he has seen? Um, Sorry, if he, if, sorry, he who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? So in the Bible, we have, uh, this is the basis for how we treat people, uh, the kinds of things that we ought to do or the kinds of things that we ought not to do. The same word is used also to describe an unborn child as one who has been born, and this is reflected in a variety of English translations the same way. Luke 1, the baby leaping in the mother's womb is the same baby Jesus we find in the cradle in verse 2. That baby uh, is uh, uh, the, I'm sorry here, uh, let's see, David, David says, you knew me and you knit me together in my mother's womb. Jeremiah and Paul speak about being set apart from their mother's womb. My point is, if you search the word of God to see how you should regard a fetus, we should regard them as babies, as children growing and living in their mother's wombs. Christians are motivated by the doctrine of the image of God, imago dei in Latin, to stand, therefore, against all dehumanizing mistreatment of all people, not only with respect to abortion, infanticide, uh, but also uh, poverty, oppression, war, genocide, euthanasia, on and on. Positively, as Grant pointed out, that means that we promote the care for the sick, for the vulnerable, for the adoption of children. It motivates Christians to promote education, science, political freedom, and a great many things. This doctrine of the image of God that has made man's man's life to be sacred and meaningful and purposeful is not to be um, shortened. Well, I could go on a a bit here, but um, I, I mention all this to you because here is the comment this morning by somebody writing into the Roanoke Times named Kathleen B. Scott. She writes, I have not read that the anti-abortionists have stood up and said, oh yes, have your baby, we will adopt your child and raise your baby under good conditions, feed, clothe, and educate. So these people need to sit down and be quiet. Abortion is between mother, doctor, and God. It is no one's business except for the ones mentioned above. All right, so I I went through this very quick theology in order that you might be able to respond to people who have such an opinion. Um, If we have failed to get the message across somehow, if the message has only seemed to be anti-abortion and uh, not this very full, this uh, very robust uh, 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 
view of life and what it means, then uh, I'd like you to be able to have a different conversation with what the Bible says about life and what this has meant in all of its fullness. Now, somebody else wrote in, uh, separation of church and state. Why do so many on the right not know about this? Okay, I've given you various biblical arguments. I actually had more on the page that I'll skip over, but what, what does the Bible have to do with the laws in America? Somebody will want to know. This is a Christian perspective. It's Christians that view life in the womb as human, as, uh, as human beings with rights, in other words, human rights. Well, this is a very important question indeed not just because of law, but because of the long-term spiritual and psychological damage that abortion does to the one in every four women in this country who get an abortion before they turn 45. A huge qualitative study was published in the Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons titled, Women Who Suffered Emotionally from an Abortion, a Qualitative Synthesis of Their Experience. They surveyed, this is not quantitative, qualitative, that is interviews of 1,000 post-abortive women. And this is what they found. Over 49% reported believing the fetus was a human being at the time of abortion. 66% said they knew in their heart that they were making a mistake when they underwent the abortion. 67.5% revealed that the abortion decision was one of the hardest decisions of their lives. The data shows that 13% of women said that they visited a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a counselor before the pregnancy resulted in an abortion. However, 67.5% then visited such professionals after their first abortion. Only 6% of respondents reported using prescription drugs for psychological health prior to their first pregnancy, compared with the 51% who reported prescription drug after the first abortion. These data suggest that the women as a group are generally psychologically healthy, but why then are, having, are they having so many abortions? Well, 58% of women said that they were having an abortion to make others happy, that they simply did not have enough support or encouragement from others to make the choice that they wanted to make. Well, here's where our signaling becomes very, uh, very practical and very important. Uh, they don't hear from Christians that we will be glad to adopt your baby and raise it in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to not only feed and clothe it, but love it and care for that. Um, we, we know that most women, the majority of women, are doing it to make other people happy because you don't have enough support or encouragement. We will be very, very happy to support and encourage you and to help you through every difficult choice that you have to make after you decide to have a child um, this issue is considered a political issue. Uh, it is, in fact, not only a rights issue, but a sin issue. And we have a sin solution. It was sinners that Christ Jesus came into the world to save. We are able not only to help people with life, but to help people with a great burden that they carry, having not chosen it in the past. The doctor, uh, the doctor goes into the one woman's room and says, uh, Madam, your baby is doing just fine and uh, all is well. And she smiles with a tear, thanks the doctor. He goes into the next room 
and says, uh, ma'am, don't worry, we'll, we'll have this uh, taken care of in three days and the fetus, the pregnancy will be, will be over. Um, doctors know, patients know, um, it takes a uh, rather hard heart uh, not to think things through. And so this is not a religious matter, this is a life and death matter. This is a human issue, uh, not just a biblical issue. And that's why uh, Christians from the beginning, recognizing this fact, um, have sought not only to uh, promote anti-abortion legislation, but uh, a variety of pro-life ministries and um, support. So this is uh, the first thing. We must treat others with sacred dignity and value because they are in the image of God. This is our big picture approach to the problem. People don't know. People uh, think that uh, we have signs and placards that we are waving against their rights. Um, it's not primarily a matter of uh, human right as it is a matter of uh, human life. And so we, we come then back to the passage in order that we might uh, remember one more thing that will direct our ministry in the world in Christ the passage says in particular, we are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of our creator. We are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the creator. We have put off the old man with anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, all the uh, uh, things that would come rather naturally to our flesh. We are to put on uh, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, and love because God is rehumanizing us in Jesus, restoring us in Christ to that holy image that we were in the beginning made to be. Above all these things, we are to put on love, the bond of perfection. I heard a man once say that if there is a God, he couldn't believe that he'd be interested in us. Uh, and I, I wondered when I heard that, what do you think that means for his philosophy of life? What are we? What are you? Are you a, a bag of chemicals? Are you a very fancy reaction? Um, do you have any other worth or value? Does God not regard humanity as worth any notice? That's what the Stoics taught. If there is a God, he doesn't care about us. That was the height of Greek philosophy at the time that the gospel came into the world. I'll tell you what Christianity says what we have confessed from time immemorial in the Nicene Creed, that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, very God of very God, begotten, not made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and became man. And for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, was suffered, dead, and buried, and so forth. For God has so loved the world. The man was right. We are unworthy of any such attention and love, but Christ has loved me and given himself for me, and now God has forever joined our human nature to himself in Jesus. So even if humanity was nothing, a, a rebellious chemical reaction, the revolution that came out of Bethlehem was this. God has invested this dust of the earth with the greatest conceivable dignity and honor. 
The God who made us in his image at the beginning has forever dignified human nature by taking that nature to himself forever in the Son, Jesus Christ. And in love, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so here we have, as the followers of Christ, the greatest conceivable proof of the dignity and honor of mankind and the importance of human life. The greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of the world has happened for human beings. No greater honor could be paid to this human race. No greater elevation in the value of what God remarkably had made a creation than the God the Son, the maker of heaven and earth, would then take upon himself our nature in love and out of love, give his life's blood. It was already a marvelous thing that he created us in his image. But to give his life to redeem this image and to restore it, it has given us not only uh, this doctrine of the image of God, it's, uh, it's elevated human life's purpose and potential far above anything that the ancients even conceived. Jacques Derrida, the most eminent philosopher of postmodernism, a man who is, was openly antagonistic to the Christian faith and morals, I mean, who died because of his attachment to the bathhouses of San Francisco, telling the people that he, he was uh, killing them by giving them AIDS. So such a man, no friend of the Christian faith is my point, wrote, Today, the cornerstone of international law is the sacred, what is sacred in humanity. You should not kill. You should not be responsible for a crime against the sacredness, the sacredness of man as your neighbor. In that sense, the concept of crime against humanity is a Christian concept. And I think there would be no such thing in the law today without the Christian heritage. The world had no such concept. The world has forgotten this concept several times in the past, and the people of God have had to remind the world that human beings are uh, not like the beasts of the field or, again, uh, stardust, twice refined, fizzing, as one man says. In the aftermath of World War II, when the horrors of the Nazis had come to light, the perpetrators of mass murder at concentration camps were brought to trial. And you know their defense, right? We're only following the laws of our nation. We had defined Jews as non-persons. Non-persons have no legal rights, including a right to life. The International War Crimes, Crimes Tribunal required but gentlemen, there is a higher law. And they put them to death for what they had done. It doesn't matter what rights nations say they grant or take away. What values a culture chooses to embrace or not embrace. Or even what a great majority of the people believe will be for the good and happiness of those breathing air in society. There is a higher law a higher lawgiver and a judge. And no man has the right to take away what God himself has granted. I heard a person on the radio just uh, two days ago said that uh, this very unusual uh, development, the Supreme Court has taken away a right rather than granting a right. And I thought, oh man, we're in trouble. If the Supreme Court is in the business of granting human rights, 
or taking away human rights according to their pleasure. It's one thing to recognize a human right and to enshrine it in law. It's another thing when people think that the government gives you the right to life or could take it away. That's happened many times in the past. It was in those days after the war that a number of people got together to draft a variety of resolutions, and the most famous of these that passed the United Nations bore the title, The Universal Declaration of Human Rights. A remarkable document that begins, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act toward one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Everyone is entitled to all the rights and freedoms set forth in this declaration without distinction of any kind. It's a wonderful statement inspired by much good work, but ultimately hollow. Do you know why? Because it gave no reason and no basis for the rights it enumerated. It asserted that human beings are endowed with reason and conscience, and that they, they, they therefore should act toward one another in a spirit of brotherhood. It didn't say endowed by whom, or why people should act in a spirit of brotherhood. I mean, we have an answer to that question. But the primary author of that declaration, uh, Jacques Maritain, he also wrote the introduction uh, in its publication. He said that the, he wrote in the introduction, uh, yes, we agree about the rights, but on the condition no one asks us why. Why do you have any rights? Why do human beings have any rights? There was no concept in the ancient world of rights. If you wanted the rights of a citizen, you had to pay for them. If you wanted justice, you had to pay. Uh, Roman citizens couldn't be flogged without a trial. And that would be, cost you a pricely sum. You do your part for society, you give money to, to the government, the government will give you certain rights. That was their concept of rights. We have a Christian idea. Even Derrida agrees. What will happen when we forget who gave us rights, or even what they are? Thomas Jefferson asked it way back when. Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed the only firm basis, a conviction of the minds of the people, that their liberties are a gift from God? Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., the famous Chief Justice of the Supreme Court now, almost 200, excuse me, almost 100 years ago, a major intellectual in the early 20th century, was a very secular man. He wrote, scientifically, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind than what belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. I mean, we're more complex, perhaps, than a grain of sand. But what inherent significance do we have? from a legal perspective, none. You say, well, everyone agrees that we have these rights. Right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Not at all. When the, human, uh, when the, when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was approved by the UN, it did not receive universal approval. The communist states voted against it, following Marx, uh, rejecting human rights as a product of Christianity. Uh, the Muslim nations uh, agreed under 
their uh, British overlords, and yet later they submitted their own version of a Declaration of Human Rights uh, that took away a number of things, like, for example, the freedom of religion. My point is this, everyone does not agree in human rights. Uh, certainly the Marxists do not agree. The Marxists that are increasingly affecting uh, their change in our society. Without a basis for rights, we will perhaps lose some and gain others that we don't want to have. And uh, the impact on the most vulnerable people will grow worse and worse. Here's an article a few years ago in the Christian Post. Earlier this year, the word infanticide wormed its way into the national consciousness. A video surfaced of Planned Parenthood spokesman, uh, spokesperson Lisa Snow advocating for infanticide. Her pro-infanticide advocacy took place in a Florida legislature committee meeting. Medical treatment for survivors of attempted abortions, she said, even if not the emergency kind, should be withheld if desired by the mother. That was reported in the news um, fairly widely, although it quickly went away from the national consciousness, but not before, quote, MSNBC commentator Melissa Harris-Perry speculated that when life begins depends an awful lot on the feeling of the parents, a powerful feeling, but not science, she said. Let us say in the view of one of the most eminent news commentators in our country, life depends on the feeling of the parents. We know that uh, the feelings of an individual are very important these days. What do you feel like today? man or woman, uh, you, you get to choose and uh, the law protects your choice. And what she's saying is really the same thing happens when you look at a child. Is it a child? Depends on the feeling of the parents. People are discouraged about the state of the world today and for good reasons. But I'd like to remind you, dear brothers and sisters, that for centuries, when Christianity didn't even have a legal existence, when Christians endured the most excruciating persecutions, we not only won the hearts of the world, but profoundly changed the world for the better. And we did it in large part by our very public, remarkable commitment to life. This stood out as a blazing um, uh, uh, light in the darkness of the world of the day. Understanding how Christians have made a difference in the past helps us maintain a difference in the world today and gives us hope for the future. Do you know that in 1850, nearly one in three uh, pregnancies ended in abortion? Uh, abortions were very openly advertised in newspapers. The surgical techniques had been perfected, were re relatively safe and very widespread. Yeah, do you know what happened? Um, I wish I could say the church at that point rose to prominence and led the nation uh, against the practice. That was not the case. The churches were largely silent. It, it was largely the American Medical Association that rose up and, and said uh, that this is an, uh, a horrible, inhumane practice. Uh, and the feminism of the day said that this abortion that's being uh, so uh, rampantly practiced is an assault upon women. Um, very different kind of feminism we have today, kind of the reverse. Both the AMA and feminists have reversed their, their tune. Um, it, 
it, it was not the church that had taken the lead earlier in America. It's time for the church once again to be able to reassert the importance of caring for all life, especially that that is the most vulnerable, and to be able to do a better job in messaging that we're not simply against certain laws, but uh, that we have a very full commitment to life and all that it means. That without having this sight of God, humanity will inevitably begin to shrink, that we will become more and more uh, callous toward life, that in the name of progress, we'll be heading more and more to life in the ancient world. In the final analysis, life without God becomes a tale told by an an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. However, in Christ Jesus, we have the uh, high and holy calling, knowing that man was made for higher things, that men and women are made in the likeness of God for fellowship of God, given powers like God's own, in order that being renewed in knowledge that we might be able to not only treat our neighbor uh, appropriately, but to be able to speak the word of life into a dying world. We have been given powers like God's own, however smaller in scale, precisely so that we might have a grasp of God and his glory and of the privilege of communion with him. And in Christ especially, the greatest gift ever given, the greatest sacrifice ever made, and the greatest miracle ever performed for human beings, God has dignified our humanity that we should rise above that which is dragging us down to the pit. We will never understand this world or our own lives or make of them what we should until we know the one who has made us and done such great things to deliver us and restore us to true glory in eternal life. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you have blessed the dust of the earth with the privilege of bearing your image. We often don't see it in ourselves or in others as we ought, we confess. We have often treated your image with contempt and pray humbly that you would forgive us and continue to renew your image in us in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And pray that you would bless our efforts in uh, walking in this world according to such knowledge. We pray, our Father, that you would make our uh, nation at this delicate time uh, to be wise in um, how it proceeds and uh, that the um, protections, the legal protections, which from time immemorial uh, have uh, been the heritage of our Christian and Western nations, would again be restored to what they ought to be. We pray that the church also would rise at this time to be a light in the darkness, that men may see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. And we pray that you would bless uh, this uh, uh, current conversation in the high areas of our nation with uh, men of God, of, of wisdom, of grace, and of understanding, who will be able to lay out the uh, the great things of, of God in this area. We pray for your blessing upon uh, those many Christians who are in turmoil seeking to know what they ought to say or what they ought to do or what this will mean for them going forward. We pray that you would um, support and bless all your people according to their calling and uh, that the, um, uh, the, the liberties of our nation, uh, including its religious liberties, would continue to be blessed and to be uh, protected by you. 
We confess, our Father, that uh, once again, any uh, rights that we have, any privileges that we enjoy, ultimately have come only from you. And we thank you for the dignity that you have bestowed upon our race and pray that you would uh, uh, bless and establish us as our creator with these inalienable rights that no man may give nor take away, that to you would be the glory through Jesus.